As we broadcast live from the cultural and culinary crossroads of America, a.k.a. Des Moines, Iowa, we're here in the studios of Lorena, 1260 AM and 96.5 FM. So, hey, a quick shout-out to some of our local business partners. Uh, thanks to Gateway Marketing Cafe, located at 20th and Woodland in the Sherman Hill neighborhood. That's my grocery store and a great place for breakfast, lunch, and supper. They've also got a catering service. That's Gateway Marketing Cafe. Thanks also to Story County Veterinary Clinic, where Dr. Kim Holding has been treating creatures great and small for over 30 years. That's Story County Veterinary Clinic. Thanks also to Ritual Cafe on 13th Street between Locust and Grand in downtown Des Moines. Fair trade coffee, fair trade tea, and an all-vegetarian menu. Ritual Cafe. And thanks to Cinco de Mayo Restaurant located on Southeast 14th Street in Des Moines. Authentic Mexican food at great prices and very, very affordable service. And finally, uh, thanks to uh, Namaste Restaurant located at 7500 University Ave in Clive, just across the Windsor Heights line. The restaurant is new. It features North and South Indian cuisine with Nepalese specialties, including samosas, paneer dishes, uh, biryani, and tandoori. That's uh, Namaste Restaurant in Clive, Iowa. All right, welcome to the program today, folks. So we've got, as always, a diverse lineup for you. Later in the program, we'll be talking about the Iowa Supreme Court ruling that went against landowners and the Sierra Club regarding the Dakota Access Pipeline. We'll also talk about the uh, the the slay the, the the incredible number I don't even know what to call it the avalanche of anti-choice legislation being passed by states mostly in the South. We'll talk about that with Aaron Davidson Rippey of Planned Parenthood. We'll also talk about what privatizing Iowa's Medicaid program has meant for local hospitals and local providers with uh, Simon uh, Davis-Cohen. He'll be joining us by phone during the second segment of this program. But first, kicking it off, we're going to talk with Ruth Henderson, who's in the studio with us here, about the March for Science. Hello, Ruth. Welcome to the show. Good morning. Thanks for having me. So we got an event coming up, but before we talk about that, let's get people up to speed on what is March for Science. Well, I'm part of a group called March for Science Iowa, which is um, um, offshoot of the national group March for Science. Um, a lot of people had quite a bit of angst after the results of the 2016 election, and different groups were formed, things like the Women's March and, of course, March for Science. But see, it hasn't turned out that bad, has it? Well, we won't <laughs> go there. Well, I just... <laughs> we don't have, sorry, the program's only an hour. We don't have enough time. Continue. <laughs> so, um, uh, March for Science, um, the purpose of March for Science is that we're a nonprofit, nonpartisan group supporting science in the public interest. We would like our elected officials to base their policies based on sound scientific facts and evidence. Isn't that asking too much? Well, we would hope not. <laughs> we would hope not. But isn't it amazing that science uh, is disregarded when it comes to something as increasingly evident as climate change? Unfortunately, yes. And um, the March for Science group did uh, originally have a march in 20, 2017. There were march, satellite marches all over the nation, actually all over the world. Mm. Uh, 2018, we had um, a small march here in Iowa. The weather was not cooperative. But um, we're just trying to bring science out to the forefront. We did have a rally for the Paris Climate Accords after mm -hmm. the disappointing withdrawal of um, the United States from the Paris Climate Accords. Yeah, remind me what month in 2017 that was. Oh, shoot. Um, we had that um, rally in June, I believe, of okay. 2017. Okay, right. I believe that was in June. Um, uh, President Trump waited a little bit to exit the Paris Climate Accord. He, were, he acted immediately to re reignite the Keystone and Dakota Access pipelines. So Those are obviously higher priorities to him than exiting Paris, but obviously Paris was uh, a thorn in his side as well, probably for no other reason than President Obama signed it. That could be. I won't <laughs> go there. <laughs> That's my job, to go there. So anyway, uh, you've been busy. Yes, we have. Um, we've decided this year not to do a march, but go um, down the real positive route of just promoting science and science literacy. Mm -hmm. So what we've done this year is um, plan an event, a family-friendly event, at the Raccoon River Park in West Des Moines. 
It has a beautiful 3.2-mile nature trail. And what we've done is um, get organizations to sign on to be part of our event and be part of our, our nature trail. So um, families will have opportunities to just um, learn a little bit more about science. They'll have opportunities to learn a little bit more about conservation and recycling, as well as looking at volunteer opportunities. Many times people mm. would like to volunteer um, for um, uh, environmental causes, but don't know what they can do. Sure. And now, now, so just to be clear, the March for Science was initiated around concerns about climate change, or was it more, was it initiated on a more on a broader agenda? Yeah, I think a broader agenda. Just okay. looking at um, the attacks that the scientific community was experiencing. In what other spheres? Uh, well, obviously we have, I shouldn't say obviously, but we have seen a lot of attacks on the science of vaccines. Mm -hmm. And that is really causing quite a bit of problems with the measles outbreaks. Um, we see that um, obviously the, uh, the administration is doing some more attacks on whether the climate science is reliable. Right. And um, we're not seeing the... Um, progress that we would like to see on reducing our carbon impact and we do definitely need to look at what kinds of things we can do to make sure that our our global temperature rise does not reach any more than right. 1.5 degrees. So what about science surrounding uh, GMOs and or uh, nuclear power for example those often uh, generate some pretty heated conversation as well. Um, I can't speak to the nuclear power right now because I haven't been following that one as well. I do know that um, you do find that there is a lot of um, controversy about the GMOs. And we do see a lot of products in the stores that basically they're advertising no GMOs. So, um, you know, there's a lot of research out there that says GMOs are, are good, and we're seeing some research the other way. So I'm, I'm not weighing in quite on that one yeah. yet. Well, and that's probably just as well because um, vaccines, GMOs, nuclear power, uh, those are all important issues to discuss, but uh, climate change is actually threatening our very existence. So exactly. it's good that you're focused on that. And that, that focus is not just locally here, but that's the focus nationally or perhaps internationally of March for Science, correct? Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Because um, if we don't take care of that, nothing else will matter. Right. And how are we doing? I don't think we're doing very well. I do think that um, we're looking at a tipping point. What about 2030 if we're not if we're not getting pretty proactive about this? That's what science is saying. Uh, scientists are saying, and some are saying that they, even that's a bit conservative. That they, you know, they, scientists they present information, of course, and then politicians get a hold of it because obviously what scientists are saying for action to be taken on what they're discovering, it requires political action. But politicians tend not to want to uh, rock the boat any more than they have to, and especially with all the uh, the money coming in from interests that, that benefit from the current reliance on fossil fuel, it's a hard sell to get a politician to say, yeah, I'm going to go 100% with what scientists are saying. So they tend to want to water it down a bit. So I, I think even that 2030 deadline or target date, if you call it that, is probably a bit on the conservative side. And uh, we should probably be a little bit more proactive. I mean, again, the political solution is is is, is challenging <laughs> because of the, the nature of where we're at in politics. Absolutely, absolutely. But. And there's so much involved with um, uh, um, incentives to to reduce the carbon footprint of an individual or as a um, from from businesses or from other organizations so it's a big problem but we need to have our elected officials on board to start moving toward that hmm. that solution and we don't have that in the White House right now we don't have it in the US Congress we don't have it in many state legislatures that's correct so we have a lot of work to do in a little time. And, you know, and I, I know that there are people who are really focused hard on trying to get bipartisan solutions. I know like the carbon fee and dividend is one such proposal that, at least in theory, would have appealed to a broader cross-section of the political establishment. Um, and, I, you know, I, I commend that uh, approach. I think it's, uh, it's worth, uh, worth, uh, worth pursuing. Yeah, it, may, it may come down to having... Uh, uh, you know, uh, you know, electing leadership that is on board without needing a lot of persuasion. 
Yeah. So anyway, I agree. that's um, <laughs> that's a whole other conversation. Yeah. So anyway, March for Science. Uh, uh, you know, I, I think when it first came out, I remember hearing about it. I remember um, actually, I, I wasn't able to go to the event because I was involved with another march, <laughs> which finished the week later than the March for Science. But I remember thinking, well, this is a great idea. I didn't know that it was going to be an ongoing thing, but I also think that's a good idea. So this is, uh, I mean, this is not, uh, you have this event planned this year, and there are other, I assume the other March for Science chapters are also doing something. Doing something that was called a, um, a Day of Action right. this year. And um, the the national group just um, basically um, did not promote necessarily having a march this year, but that individual um, chapters could do whatever mm -hmm. that they wanted to this yeah. year to promote our day of action. We actually had the first day of action event with our our panelists on, on climate change at Drake University on, was that May 3rd? Maybe. Okay. It was, it was a month ago, so it seems like an eternity. <laughs> yes, yes, it does. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, I mean, part of the, part of the problem is... Um, Science, and this is my, my perception, you can correct me if you think otherwise, part of the problem is that scientists tend to present information in ways that it's, it's not really easy for people to digest, partly because it may be complicated and technical and using a lot of inside terminology, partly because a lot of us aren't real good at science. Um, and it just doesn't come naturally. And it doesn't... And it doesn't... And it doesn't um, it, it requires – okay, so you've got Bill Nye, the science guy, which I think is probably uh, an exaggerated, you know, descriptor. But here's somebody who has found ways of being very entertaining while talking about climate change to the point of, uh, you know, lighting a globe on fire on the John Oliver show recently. <laughs> Do you feel that that presentation helps move us forward in terms of embracing the wisdom of scientists and the and the and the and the importance of recognizing the validity of science. Well, I will tell you, with teaching science for many many years and uh, the last many years with middle school science students, using Bill Nye was wonderful oh, yeah? because he could pre if if you didn't understand the concept after that twenty minute Bill Nye um, program, you probably weren't going to understand it. And so we need to bring um, science to the point where that everyone can understand it. They're not afraid of it. They're not afraid to read about science, to understand how science can impact their lives, how important it is. And that's what the Science Festival Trail mm. really is about. Okay. So they're, 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 it, it, it's not just Bill Nye, obviously, who's, who's using that approach. Uh, this is part and parcel of what you're trying to do through the March of Science. Yes, we have um, um, organizations like um, uh, Tiger Lily STEM, which will have STEM activities for kids mm, there. Okay. We have the Science Center of Iowa that's going to have activities for kids. We actually have the ASAP robotics competition team that's going to bring their robot, which is about the size of a small refrigerator, for demonstration at the event. That's, so, a, that's a big enough robot. Yeah, apparently, okay. yeah. And so what we're trying to do is, is not only have some science literacy, but have a lot of fun with science at the same right. time and get those, those young people motivated so that they're interested in studying science because those are our, those are the people that are going to solve our problems. Yeah. So you, you have people who are you know, pro-vaccine, anti-vaccine, pro-climate action, anti-climate action, pro-GMO, anti-GMO. Is there an anti-robot crowd? I, I haven't met one yet. Oh, I might need to start that. <laughs> I'm, well, I'm, scared. Come I'm scared of robots. <laughs> well, I don't know. I don't trust I... them. They have those beady eyes and you never know what they're going to do. And I think they're really trying to take over. Well, we've been watching too many movies then. I haven't. I don't. I don't watch movies. Maybe that's my problem. I need to watch more movies. Get to love the robot. There anyway. you go. <laughs> okay. Well, hey, Ruth. I really appreciate you taking the time to join us. We've been talking, folks, with Ruth Henderson with March for Science, herself a science instructor, and um, now the uh, lead person behind the Science Festival Trail at Raccoon River Park in Des Moines, in West Des Moines coming up on June 9th. On Sunday, 1 to 4 p.m. Um, you can join any time during the trail. You can join. You, there's two different entrances for the trail. We have the DNR Education Trailer there as well. And so you can check in there and get your passport for the trail or uh, check in at the Coneflower Shelters, get your passport there. You'll get some popcorn to take along. And when you finish the trail with your little stamps for all the or organizations, then you can turn it in for some ice cream and for or a swag right. bag full of goodies. You really know how to bring them in. I hope so. Ice cream and then a bunch of junk. <laughs> uh, 
I, I no, think there's okay. some pretty good things <laughs> okay. in there. Actually, the and the bag is a reusable shopping oh, bag. Oh, good call, good call. Okay. Well, I, that, and if folks outside of our listening area in Des Moines want to get more involved, because again, there are March for Science events all over the country. What's the uh, what's the what's the uh, website? Well, they can go to the to? Facebook page and um, look up March for Science Iowa, and um, that'll talk about events, talk about what March for Science Iowa is, opportunities to volunteer. We also have um, and there's March for Science U.S. as well, right? Uh, this this one will be March for Science Iowa. Um, you, they can look up March for Science as well. Okay, um, they might have a little bit different uh, focus right. about. Uh, we also have um, a website that they can go to, which is just um, March for Science Iowa. Great. Well, hey, thanks so much for joining us, uh, Ruth. And when we come back from a short break, folks, we're going to talk with uh, with uh, Simon uh, Simon Davis Cohen about the privatization of Medicaid in Iowa and what that has meant for small hospitals and local providers across the state. And again, a lot of this you know, this is very similar to some of the stuff happening across the country as as corporations dig their fingers deeper and deeper into a lot of uh, services that historically have been provided uh, at the, uh, at the, the common good. Back in a minute, folks, on the Fallon Forum. Gateway Marketing Cafe is your locally owned source for specialty groceries. Enjoy chef-crafted prepared foods, artisan baked goods, organic produce, specialty cheeses, and hand-selected wines and craft beer. Visit the lively cafe for breakfast, lunch, and dinner seven days a week. Gateway Market is centrally located on the corner of Martin Luther King Jr. Parkway and Woodland Avenue. Stop by or visit www.gatewaymarket.com for more details. Gateway Market. Good food. Great community. For all your accounting needs, both business and personal, contact Ying Sa at Community CPA with offices in Des Moines and Iowa City. It seems that tax law changes every year. You want an accountant who's up to speed on the latest twists and turns. Someone who can help make sure your tax return is filed accurately, in a timely manner, and properly, so you don't end up paying any more than you need to pay. So give Ying Sa, the founder of Community CPA, a call at 515-288-3188. That's 515-288-3188. Across the Des Moines metro, Ritual Cafe is known for its excellent fair trade coffee and fair trade tea. Ritual Cafe also serves breakfast and lunch and offers an entirely vegetarian menu. This unique venue is also known for its live music and displays of local artwork on the walls. Located on 13th Street between Locust and Grand in downtown Des Moines, Ritual Cafe is open six days a week. Make Ritual Cafe a daily part of your ritual. Times are tough, and most people are just trying to make their cars last a little bit longer. That's why you should know about Sargent's Garage in Des Moines. You can trust Sargent's to make the right diagnosis and give you a fair price every time. Whether it's a routine oil change or a major repair, Sargent's always does outstanding work. So don't give up on that old car just yet. Call Sargent's Garage at 515-246-8149. That's 515 515- It's important to know where your food comes from. At Hawk Restaurant, that's easy because 90% comes from Iowa Farms and Iowa Producers. Located at East 5th and Walnut Street, Hawk is open for lunch and supper Monday through Saturday. From May through October, you'll also find Hawk at the Downtown Farmer's Market serving fantastic breakfast wraps with 100% of the ingredients from Iowa, except for the salt and pepper. Learn more at hawktable.com. That's H-O-Q table.com. Dr. Kim Holding has over 30 years of experience working with all creatures great and small. Cat, dog, horse, cow, elephant... Well, maybe not an elephant. If you've got a pet elephant, you may be in trouble. Kim's work history is long and deep, and her clients stick with her year after year because they know she will do right by them and their pets and farm animals. So give Dr. Holding a shout to keep your animals happy and healthy. Call 515-232-8766. That's 232-8766. Welcome 
back to the Fallon Forum. Ed Fallon with you here. That's Brother Trucker and their tune, Downtown, kicking off the uh, second segment of our conversation today as we broadcast from Lorena, 1260 AM and 96.5 FM. Again, later in the program, Erin Davidson-Rippey joining us. She's with Planned Parenthood. We're going to talk about what's behind the landslide of states passing these extreme anti-choice bills. And later in the program, we'll also talk about the Iowa Supreme Court decision on the Dakota Access Pipeline and how that's being received by landowners along the route and by environmentalists. Okay, but first, we're going to go to our phone line and welcome Simon Davis-Cohen to the program. Uh, Simon uh, is joining us to talk about the privatization of Iowa's Medicaid program, which has amounted to some pretty serious delayed reimbursements to hospitals and providers across the state. And again, many other states are experiencing the same challenges right now as uh, the the um, fetish for privatizing Medicaid seems to have caught on. Hello, Simon. Welcome to the program. Hi, Ed. Thanks for having me. Sure. So um, you're joining us uh, on the phone from Washington, D.C., am I correct? Uh, New York City. Oh, I get Excellent. those towns mixed up all the time. I know. <laughs> Happens to the best of them. Yeah. And you are uh, a writer, a filmmaker, uh, a commentator on all matters relevant to uh, to America's healthcare system, correct? Uh, yeah. Well, you know, I came at this story through my interest in local government issues. Um, and kind of, and so that's kind of the angle I came at this from. But I, I'm, I was also, also, so looking at how the privatization of Medicaid. In, coupled with the Iowa state legislature's attacks on local governments kind of exacerbate one another. So the way that, so in, in Iowa, the state legislature has really constrained many of the powers of local governments. Give us, a, give us a few examples there. Right, exactly. So like in Iowa, cities can't raise the minimum wage. There was the, uh, the sanctuary, the sanctuary city preemption that, you know, threatens local governments that, that try to offer any type of sanctuary to non-citizens, um, and, and those those are initiatives in, uh, inspired, led by a Republican administration, a Republican legislature. No way! I thought the, I thought the Republican I thought Republican Party was pretty strong on local rights, states' rights, local control. Right. Well, do I, well, do I, did, I, did I misunderstand that? I think you did. <laughs> um, so what I'm seeing across the country is that these Republican-controlled legislatures are very, they want a very centralized state government. So they want no authority for local governments that, that want to propose new ideas to raise the minimum wage, to do anything. And, and that went so far in Iowa, where the, the legislature has really constrained local governments' ability to raise revenue um, and tax Right. Um, property in a more progressive way to tax commercial property, industrial property. Um, and so I really looked at how the how the Medicaid um, privatization affects that dynamic. So when you have so what's happening is that the managed care organizations that are you know the, providing the privatized health care, you know when they delay reimbursements so much, you know, delay, delay, some oftentimes, like in, in, in Iowa, where there's, there's many county-run and city-run hospitals, so those hospitals aren't getting their, their, their checks. Like, the, the private companies aren't, are just delaying the reimbursements, and that means that the local government is saying, well, not only are we not getting reimbursed by Medicaid, but we're our hands are tied to, um, you know, and so we're not able to raise revenue in these other ways to kind of fill that void. And so that leads to, you know, further privatization of local um, health care infrastructure. Right. Um, so, so, it, so it affects local governments okay. in that way, but also, also it has, you know, these, these broader impacts on private providers as well. So, I mean, how many states have uh, have attempted or accomplished uh, privatization of Medicaid? You know, I don't have that number offhand, but there's a, definitely a growing trend, yeah. and and what I'm seeing is that um, you know once once there is that private motive put into mm-hmm. place, the kind of effort is to it's like they're just. 
they're, they're, they're just trying to make it as kind yeah. of cumbers as cumbersome as possible to get paid for for the health for tell me tell me what yeah, you think sorry, of this uh, Simon my, my 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 impression is that Republicans don't necessarily hate local government what they mm-hmm. hate is not doing the bidding of the corporate interests that fund their campaigns and so right. well I mean when it comes to sanctuary cities I, yeah I guess I guess mm-hmm. there's no there's no there's no big donor sponsor there but there's there's a lot of hay to be made in terms of dividing and trying to conquer the electorate. Um, but when it comes to plastic bags, uh, minimum wage, Medicaid, there are, or Medicare rather, there are big donors that want to see these changes or if, if, if it's when it comes to Medicare, or they want to prevent those changes from happening at the local level. That's my take on it. What do you think? Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, it's a, you know, it's a way to consolidate power, um, you know, and, and, power is much more easily controlled when consolidated so right. you know we're seeing that across across the country for sure yeah um but and back to the medicaid privatization you know we're like i spoke to doctors who are saying that you know pe- people are starting to question whether or not they want to take medicaid uh patients anymore just because it's so cumbersome so it's like the managed care organizations are saying kind of like just making it such a hassle to even provide that care that folks are saying, well, is it even worth it for me to take new patients? Um, because we're just the the reliability of the reimbursements just isn't there. Right. So you're you're asking local governments and small providers, small doctors, you know, small nursing homes to take that risk. What, what, um, is, the, what is the does the analysis suggest that uh, it's the smaller? community hospitals and providers that are being affected the worst or is it equal is it an equal opportunity offender uh, that also affects the bigger hospitals in the urban centers as well well you know I couldn't say that definitively but when when something when when you have a small provider um, you know their budgets are so small that you know little changes can really push them over the edge you know if you have a hundred thousand dollars of reimbursement that you're waiting on and you've got a small budget, that's a lot. And, you know, you know, for a local government to take out a loan right. to to basically, you know, in, in anticipation for of reimbursement eventually being repaid, but you're you're asking these local smaller institutions right. to take to take out that that kind of financial so, risk. You know, you know and, and I yeah, I understand. I understand how the uh, how these uh, the corporations that are benefiting from this it's a huge benefit, and I understand right. again how the politicians who get donations from them are benefiting, but the public mm-hmm. opinion on this is off the charts against it. Right is is there is there going to is there going to come a point where they're not able to continue to do this and might even have to step back and unprivatize. Uh, well, it's looking least. very, and yeah, I mean, like, just just recently, just the last couple months, the federal government is now investigating whether or not the private uh, managed care organizations are, or they're investigating the way they've cut disabled patients' benefits in the state. You've got the federal office of inspector, the inspector general investigating what's going on in Iowa, and then the huge... Um, Managed care organization United Healthcare, you know, leaving the state. Um, so it's really in a, right. a pretty extreme place yeah. right now, where you know it looks like it could easily, you know, kind of go go back. Um, yeah. It yeah, it just seems like a total mess. And yet, and yet, you we had a, we had a Democratic candidate for governor here in Iowa, who right. invested a lot of his campaign message in fixing mm-hmm. Iowa's Medicaid problem. Mm-hmm. And he got right. trounced. <laughs> so somehow, yeah. the, somehow yeah. the electorate is not on board with the right. importance of how this issue plays out in their own community. Yeah, yeah. yeah. and that's, 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 kind of, that's the reason why I tried to take this more local approach was because I think that, you know, the place where people – and trying to show how this affects, you know, very local institutions. Like if, if you have, you know, a local um, – you know, like if your hospital provides home care services, but you know when that becomes such a burden because the managed care organizations aren't um, are just 
being so slow and just dragging their feet, you know, your hospital is forced to sell off, yeah. you know, that that small service to a larger company that, that ends up providing worse and worse and less and less personal so. services. So if, if you have your county government providing services, you know, that's, I feel like people, once they start to see those types of changes, which yeah. we are seeing, and that's kind of what I was trying to shine a light on is how... Right. It's, it's making healthcare administration well, less personal. And that's pretty interesting because that's basically the privatization forces the local hospitals and providers to make tough choices that require them right. to further privatize their services mm-hmm. in order to just to stay afloat and to meet their obligations. That's, exactly. that's, that's clever. Right. <laughs> I mean, it's so clever it's on the part of, like of those a, who instigated it. Exactly. It's kind of like a positive feedback loop of privatization because you're basically, yeah, so you've got the, yeah, um, because only those very large corporations are able to, you know, if you own a hundred nursing homes, then you're able to kind of manage that type of risk more than if you're just the the local kind of mom and pop shop that, that, um, you know, is really impacted by the privatization of Iowa. Hey, one one more quick question. Do we have any data on what kinds of? I mean, I've, I've, I spoke very generally about financial donate donations from these corporate interests mm. to political mm. candidates. Is there any kind of a website or a tracking mechanism to show exactly who's been contributing, um, how much, who's been receiving that stuff, or are campaign finance laws so clothed in mm. secrecy now that it's hard to know mm. that? Mm. I mean, at this point, things are, are quite out in the open. Um, like, what I looked at, you know, the former governor, um, Brunstad, who he was very, I mean, there, there's plenty of, um, I, I'm not an expert on Iowa's uh, campaign finance laws. That information is out there. And I think a lot of it is just is sitting out in, you know, public view. You know, people are not really hiding it as much in a way where, um, you know, like the, the Barnstead um, regime, they were, you know, very close to ALEC, the American Legislative Exchange Council, who had a concerted agenda um, to, you know, push through privatization. Um, and, they, you know, on, and their, you know, major supporters of that organization, you know, are these large corporate interests. So it's really out in the mm, open yeah, and, yeah. Uh, you know, a matter of kind of, you know, I think the la- like showing that there is that amount of kind of corruption mm. is um, like, I don't know if that's that that's what pushes voters. You yeah. know, it's like we're so we're so used to, you know, hearing about that, that that yeah. kind of like yeah. overt kind of corruption that the system facilitates. Um, it's so kind of trying to show how, news, how it, yeah. <laughs> right. So trying to show how it really affects kind of local communities um, and yeah, just people's everyday lives. And, um, well, Simon, yeah. thank you. Uh, thank hurts. you for taking the time to join us. We have got to run to a break here, uh, folks. We're talking with uh, Simon Davis Cohen about Iowa's Medicaid program being privatized, and again. Uh, Situation happening a lot of states all across the country. It's worth uh, comparing notes on what the impact has been, but I imagine it's been fairly similar to what we've seen in Iowa with the struggles of local hospitals and local providers because of the uh, delayed reimbursement. So, again, Simon, thanks so much for uh, joining us. Thanks a lot, Ed. Hey, when we come back from a short break, folks, we're going to talk with Erin uh, Davidson Rippey. She's uh, with Planned Parenthood. We're going to look at the landslide of uh, states passing anti-choice legislation, and not just little tweaks, but really serious major threats to a woman's right to choose. We'll be back in a minute on the Fallon Forum. Welcome back to the Fallon Forum. We're again broadcasting from the cultural and culinary crossroads of America. That's Des Moines, as if you didn't know. We're here in the studio of Lorena, 1260 AM and 96.5 FM. And a quick shout-out to some of our local business partners. Thanks to Community CPA, 
with offices in Des Moines and Iowa City. Yeah, we just passed tax season, but it's a great idea to call community CPA as soon as you think it might be needed because they do not just good consulting on taxes, but on all your accounting needs as well. Uh, thanks also to Hawk Restaurant in Des Moines East Village, where 90% of the food served comes from Iowa farms and Iowa producers. Hawk also has a booth at the farmer's market between between Water and 2nd on Court Avenue every Saturday morning. Thanks also to Sergeant's Garage located on 6th and College. That's my go-to place for car repairs. Again, I don't drive a lot, but I have an old beater. It needs a lot of help. Sergeant's is always there for me. Great prices, excellent diagnoses, never a problem. Thanks also to Diversity Insurance located at 1541 East Grand in Des Moines. Get all your insurance needs covered under one roof. No appointment needed. That's Diversity Insurance. And finally, thanks to uh, Namaste Restaurant, located at 7500 University Ave in Clive. Uh, Namaste provides uh, a wide assortment of, uh, of Indian food from uh, Lenore, from the south, uh, also with uh, Nepalese specialties included. So check them out, folks. Under new ownership and uh, a great uh, lunch buffet as well as dinner. That's Namaste Restaurant. All right, so hey, welcome back to the program here. Later in the show, we're going to take a look at the Supreme Court ruling against the uh, landowners and the Sierra Club in the Dakota Access Pipeline fight. Speaking of fights, though, the uh, anti-choice movement has sure brought it to us all across the country. And, um, yeah, there, there are some saying that maybe it all started here in Iowa when the legislature back in 2017, I believe, do I have that right, Aaron? Well, 2017 is when they started defunding Planned defunding Parenthood Planned and Parenthood. passed a 20-week ban um, here in Iowa. But it was 2018 when Iowa saw the six-week ban. And I failed to introduce this mysterious voice, Erin Davidson Rippy, with us. She's uh, with uh, she's the executive director of Planned Parenthood of Iowa. Thanks for having and me. And so Ed. has been uh, tracking this stuff really closely. So uh, that ban was thrown out by the Iowa Supreme Court. It was. And it was regarded as the most restrictive anti-abortion law anywhere in the country. At that time. At that time. Yeah. And now even that law has been outdone. Yeah, undone by the courts, um, partially here in Iowa, because before that, um, the the year before, when I said we had a, a 20-week ban in um, 2017, another element of that was a forced 72-hour waiting period for women to receive an abortion. Um, we also challenged that law. Um, it's become, unfortunately, an annual event of, of suing the governor. Um, but the Iowa Supreme Court declared that that 72-hour forced waiting period was unconstitutional, according to Iowa's um, constitution. And not only was it unconstitutional, but what they did is that they said that abortion here in Iowa, based on our state constitution, is a fundamentally protected right and held to that highest level of scrutiny. What was the vote in that ruling? Um, it was, uh, well, I'm going to get the math wrong. I try very hard not to play an attorney on TV or radio. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, but it was, it was four to three. Okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I believe but it that's was not four that to three. Hard math. No, no. Yeah. <laughs> so, and now with uh, Governor Reynolds having appointed an Arch conservative to the uh, to the Supreme Court. It, was there any risk that that legislation might be revisited? And the ruling might be revisited and it might go a different direction? You know, I, I don't think we know yet. Um, I think um, we are hopeful that Supreme Court precedent here in Iowa will be respected. Um, it's a very similar debate that's happening at the national level around, you know, do you respect the, the decisions of past Supreme Courts? Um, so, you know, at this point, again, I, I, we're back in court um, right now over a different law that was passed just this year that funds us from a sex education, a um, couple of sex right. education grants. Um, so, you know, I, I don't know. I think, you know, we're hopeful that the courts will respect um, their their previous configuration saying that that constitutionally protected right um, for abortion. But, you know, I we were absolutely opposed to the legislation and, and now law that gave the governor more power over um, kind of what had been a, a generally well-accepted merit-based right, judicial right, nominating. Right, yeah, yeah. That, that could backfire. I, I, I was surprised that uh, Republicans wanted to change how the Supreme Court and, and the judici- judiciary generally is comprised yeah. because 
now now it's much more partisan, which is yeah. uh, which doesn't work real well in other states. No, <laughs> so it don't doesn't. Know why you'd want to go that way? Yeah, because the balance of power is always shifting. So you right. know, it, could, it could serve you well immediately, but in the future, it could be a problem. Right. But looking at the states that yeah. have passed some really horrendous anti-choice mm-hmm. laws. Uh, what would you say is the worst one right now, the most offensive? Well, you know, I think Alabama um, really won the race to the bottom of, of just okay. outright banning abortion. Um, you know, we've seen this year a number of states passing what we characterize as kind of a six-week abortion ban, mm-hmm. um, banning abortion once the fetal heartbeat is detectable. Um, of course, that's before many people even know that they are pregnant. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, as we argued, um, it really is just a ban on abortion, um, even though you say, you know, it's a certain week. So you're seeing, you know, states passing different variations of that. In some some states, it's, you know, eight weeks. and But, you know, it's all, yeah. So in, in Alabama, uh, in the case of rape or incest? So I believe that they they do not exempt rape or incest in, in Alabama. In um, the case it, of a deformed fetus? I believe, so I'm not an Alabama expert, but I believe that Alabama does have some exemption both for the um, the immediate um, health or life okay. of the woman um, and potentially for um, that sort of truly fatal fetal anomaly. Um, but, you know, here in Iowa, we see, you know, you see different configurations of this here in Iowa. Um, for the six-week abortion ban, there were some very limited exemptions for rape and incest that had to do with, like, a very narrow reporting window mm-hmm. um, related to that, but did not exempt cases of fatal fetal anomalies. Mm-hmm. Um, so you see different different configurations of that, but ultimately it is very clear that the goal of all of these bills is to send something to the United States Supreme Court to ultimately challenge Roe v. Wade. And, well, they're and, not even subtle about no, that. No, no, not at all. Yeah. No, people are very, very forward about that. Um, we had that conversation here in Iowa. Um, of course, we challenged that under the, the Iowa Constitution, which is so historically... There was, so, so there was no federal hook at that point. Right? Well, and you know, the Iowa Constitution historically has been incredibly protective of civil rights, even more so arguably than, sure. than the United States Constitution. Um, so for us, it, it made the most sense. But all of these other states, you know, legislators and, and other folks have been really clear that they are trying to make abortion illegal. Hmm. Yeah. And... Uh, is the makeup of the Supreme Court such that that's a possibility? You know, we we don't know yet. Um, I think the appointment of Brett Kavanaugh was pretty devastating for folks who um, believe in bodily autonomy, um, which is most Americans. Um, mm, yep. I think that's that's the what, are the... what does the polling say on that? Yeah, so an overwhelming um, majority of Americans believe that abortion should be legal. Um, there are different, you 60, know... 60, 70 percent? Yeah, it depends on how you ask the question. I'm sure, sure you can of appreciate course, of course. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> polling data can be, you know, can wildly swing. Um, sure. I just saw that this morning a poll was, a national poll was released that says um, that most Americans oppose these sort of six-week type abortion bans. And we're looking at, you know, around the 55 um, mark when you look at um, uh, clinics closing. So in the case, so for instance, Missouri, um, the courts blocked um, uh, the last abortion provider in Missouri being closed um, or not allowed to perform abortions. When you pull folks across um, the country on closing all of the clinics in a state, um, you see seven in 10 are opposed to to closing all of the clinics in a state. Um, So, you know, people have a lot of different personal beliefs around abortion. But when you get down to it and you ask Americans, do you believe that the government should make abortion illegal? Resoundingly, no. I mean, you're you're looking at like mm. 60 to 70 percent. Is, that, is that. that polling held pretty constant over the years or is it? Uh, um, it has. Much? I think um, what you continue to see is this issue becoming um, used as a partisan football. And so this right. is. Well, that's not unusual. No, yeah, no, but it has been a very long-term. intentional, um, yeah. you know, uh, co-opting this issue. If you go back to, you know, when Roe v. Wade passed, was yeah. was ruled, this was not the, you know, a Democrat-Republican issue. This was an issue of, you know, allowing doctors to have, you know, patient privacy. Um, and it has been an intentional effort over the years um, of, of folks who viewed this issue as something that could potentially polarize people. Mm-hmm. And they have used it. As, as a weapon, and unfortunately, the health yeah. of Americans is what is suffering. Yeah. I mean, 
the there, there's lots of evidence about uh, just as just how how horrific the situation was when abortion was illegal. Yeah, and uh, have Americans forgotten that? Are they are they aware of it? Yet still, I mean, are, 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 I mean, maybe it's not enough. I mean, I, I'm I don't, I don't know what the polling like is mm-hmm. is like in Alabama. Yeah, uh, maybe it, maybe maybe there's a majority there that support what the uh, legislature did, but I. I, I bet it's a very thin majority. If it is, I, I, I don't have a good feel for that. But, yeah. but again, I, I think it's, it, maybe people have forgotten what it's like. I think that to, I think that could be true. And you know, I so I'm uh, of a generation. I was born after Roe, sure. um, and I think that many folks in my age bracket and younger, we take for granted that that is a fundamental right that would never come under attack. And, you know, I've heard people say things like, well, you know, but they're not actually going to make it illegal. Well, they are. I mean, that is absolutely the path. And so I think that we're at kind of this reckoning point of people coming to terms with the fact that, no, this really, the goal really is for some of these people. And again, it is a small minority of, of folks who want to see abortion made illegal. But unfortunately, folks are getting sucked into this very yeah. polarizing partisan narrative. So what, what are the penalty? Again, let's assume that, that Alabama and these other states get their way mm-hmm. and the courts rule in their favor and, and their abortion ban becomes the law of the land. What are the penalties for both providers and women? Yeah, so in that sort of worst-case scenario of the United States Supreme Court overturning Roe v. Wade, um, what happens is that you are at uh, a state-by-state framework. So it, it depends. Some some states already have laws on the books that if, if Roe v. Wade was overturned, they would revert immediately back to that. You have other states that would probably immediately pass laws that would ban abortion. So it's going to depend. Um, in that scenario, we would not have kind of a nationwide um, policy, but in many states, it would criminalize both the doctor and in some cases, the woman. Yeah, and criminalized to the point of incarceration, yeah. prison time. Right. Death I mean, this Al- right. This Alabama <laughs> law. I mean, it, the way that they passed it means that you know, if someone is a you know perpetrator of rape, the rapist has far less criminal penalties than a doctor who performs an abortion that on a woman. That is absolutely insane. That is that is insane. Horrific. It is horrifying and un, just unconscionable. So, so, in the current situation, if you're in a state that has criminalized abortion. And you determine your doctor. You determine it's necessary, and you go to a neighboring state. Mm. Uh, is there is there is there any way that the home state will then uh, prosecute you? Or prosecute you, or are you are you safe to do that? Or is it again? I don't think I don't think we know. I mean, if you go back to pre row um, there were many people that traveled to states where abortion was elite. What was legal? Um, you know, you hear about New York and, so and my, my second home, Ireland. That was the case. People yeah. would travel, and, and now, of course, Ireland has become yeah. you know, very progressive on a number of fronts, yeah. including marriage equality. Cigarettes, right. <laughs> you know, other things, you know. Right, but I wouldn't put it. I wouldn't put it past folks to go after people trying to travel. Right. Um, yeah. You know, they have tried literally everything in the book, and they continue to do that. I wouldn't put anything past folks who are trying to use reproductive health as yeah. as a, a issue. Now, there are some people who are just genuinely passionate about abortion. They they just they they, they can't stomach the idea that anybody would quote take a life to use their parlance. But there are, I think, there are others within the um, within the within the Republican Party, let's say, that see this as a. It, they're more concerned about it because of it. it's a political opportunity. It's a way to fire up an element of their constituency, and it's a way to drive turnout, to drive results in elections, and so, to some extent, it helps for them to keep this alive by never actually achieving the goal of. Of completely banning abortion, mm-hmm. so that that's that's a very cynical outlook. But I don't think it's all. I don't think it's untrue. I think there are, well, there are those yeah, people and who I feel th- that way. I think that there are also plenty of Republicans who are who don't feel so strongly about this issue, but who are very fearful that if they don't toe the party line, they are going to get kicked out of the party and are going to have a problem. So, you know, it's it's really unfortunate, and it's the health of of Iowans and Americans that are going to be hurt. Yeah. So what would your challenge to listeners, to, what would you challenge them to do or to, 
I mean, yeah, on, I would, on, any, any, on any front at all, personal, political? Yeah, or? so, I mean, I have a policy and legislative background, and so absolutely, talk to your elected officials about these issues. I would also encourage folks to talk to people in your life, um, because you would be surprised at how many people feel... You know, but there's a whole spectrum of beliefs, but we have to get talking about these issues and understand that people have have beliefs on a, a whole variety of the spectrum. But ultimately, most people agree that the government and elected officials have no business making decisions about people's reproductive health. Um, and so start having those conversations and then make sure that folks in your life are making those those opinions known and talk to your elected officials and tell them, you know, quit spending time on these issues this is this is yeah. not what what you want as right. a as a citizen so one other quick question have you thought about uh, have you much information on what's happened in missouri and louisiana yeah, so Missouri, the um, health center is open now under um, under a, a court order, um, and they've been kind of going back and forth um, over a licensing challenge. The mm-hmm. state keeps kind of moving the goalposts and making it harder and harder for that um, last remaining health center to stay open and provide abortions. Um, but, you know, we continue across the country, whether it's Planned Parenthood or other other health care providers, to fight these, these bills in court. Yeah. Yep. We'll have to come back to uh, this conversation at some point, too. Uh, thank you so much for joining us. We've been talking with Aaron Davidson-Rippey, the uh, executive director of Iowa Planned Parenthood. Uh, disturbing stuff, and we'll sure, I'm, I'm sure we're going to be re- revisiting. So thank again, you for, thank having you for joining me, and us. I appreciate it. Folks, thanks for tuning in to the Fallon Forum. If you're listening online, we'll be back with conversation about the Dakota Access Pipeline. Again, thanks to Lorena, 1260 AM, to our producer, Ashley Martinez, and our post-production leader, Sherry Herdina. Again, Ed Fallon with you here. Uh, a hard day last Friday in Iowa for a lot of us. The uh, the battle against the Dakota Access Pipeline has gone on since, wow, middle of 2014. A couple years ago now, a court case was filed by about 14 landowners and the Iowa chapter of the Sierra Club. The foundation of the, of the lawsuit was that the pipeline was illegally issued, the pipeline company was illegally issued the right to use eminent domain to take farmers and landowners' property to build the pipeline, because the argument was, it's not, it's not a public utility. It doesn't serve the people in Iowa along the route. It was a pretty strong case. I mean, as somebody from my background, as someone who worked on eminent domain as a lawmaker, I thought it was a really strong case. Well, the uh, Supreme Court disagreed on a five to well. Essentially, five to two vote, they ruled against the landowners, against the Sierra Club, and they said the pipeline uh, has a right to be described as a public utility. So that was um, extremely disappointing. They, um, you know, there's, uh, I'm going to read you a couple things from the, from the ruling. The ruling is, is 45 pages. It's a fairly long ruling. And, uh, you know, I just it, it was surprising to a lot of folks that that the pipeline was regarded as anything but a conduit to transport oil from the Bakken region in North Dakota to Texas for export. Especially since <laughs> during the height of the pipeline engagement, while they were still building it, still trying to get the uh, authority accomplished and the pipeline in the ground, while that was all happening, Congress passed a legislation that changed uh, what had been the practice for 40 years. For the past 40 years, it was illegal to export crude oil. Now, that changed in 2015. Uh, October of 2015, the U.S. House uh, voted to lift that 40-year ban. And then two months later, in December of 2015, President Obama signed that into law. And I know people are like, wait, wait, wait. President Obama, he talked about climate change. He talked about how urgent it was. He talked about how he was going to make climate change a, a priority in his administration. Why would, why would President Obama sign a bill that is clearly going to exacerbate the problem by allowing the U.S. to export crude oil to you know, growing economies like China, India, 
other parts of the world. Uh, you know, and again, nothing nothing against their economies growing, but you know, maybe they should be growing and fueling that growth from you know with fossil with with something other than fossil fuels. Plenty of options there. But no, Obama signed that bill. I think that surprised a lot of people, but I think it also showed just how powerful was big oil. And again, while you've probably got a lot, well, you certainly have a lot more Republican politicians who line up with big oil, you know, don't be deceived. There's plenty of Democrats who line up with them as well. And uh, President Obama did. And to those who might say, well, that was just, uh, uh, you know, uh, an oversight. He, he didn't, maybe he had other reasons why he supported lifting the ban. Well, in November of last year, at a gathering of folks associated with the uh, Texas oil industry, Obama said, quote, I quote, suddenly America is like the biggest oil producer and the biggest gas producer in the world. That was me, people. He was taking credit for making the U.S. the biggest oil and natural gas producer in the world. And again, when it comes to being the biggest producer, uh, it, it's, it's a small step from there to become the biggest exporter, and that's what's happened. So um, that's you know for the for the uh, for the uh, in the ruling again. Back to the court ruling. Um, the court ruling said um, that Iowa is a heavy user of petro- petroleum products and ranks eighth in the country in per capita gasoline consumption. So what the court is trying to say is that. You know, we need this. Uh, you know, the, the, it was okay for the for the pipeline company to be given the the authority to use eminent domain because Iowans are going to benefit from that. It is they're saying it is a public utility because we're going to be benefiting from that. Well, you know, not the case. It's it's hard to measure exactly how much of that oil is is currently being exported, but the best estimate is somewhere between a lot and most. Again, I, I, wish we, I wish we had the kind of transparency where I could tell you exactly what the percentage is. But the best estimate is most of it is going overseas, especially when you look at China, which, um, again, 70% of the oil that China uses is imported. And so a lot of that's coming from the U.S. Uh, and China is shifting from coal to, I'd love to say, wind, solar, biodiesel, geothermal, but no, switching from coal to natural gas and crude oil. Again, to their credit, they are doing more with renewable fuels, but they're also not getting, they're not getting, they're not phasing out of coal to do that entirely. They're also phasing out coal to get more into gas and oil. And again, oil coming from the U.S. So, you know, the court just has that wrong. It's not, this is not about a pipeline you know, transporting oil that Iowans are going to use. So to say that, quote, Iowa is a heavy user of petroleum products, you know, misses the point. Now, there was one thing in the ruling that um, that uh, I, f- I found some encouragement with, and that is that the uh, court seems to understand the importance of climate change. And maybe it was just a passing reference. Maybe they really don't get it. Uh, but this is again. This was not. This is not the opposition opinion, though, because uh, there were two justices, David Wiggins and Brent Apple, who voted no, who did, and, and, and Wiggins wrote the opposition um, uh, analysis. Uh, it was uh, Judge Ed, Man- Ed Mansfield who wrote the um, the uh, the ruling in favor of it. And Mansfield, despite writing a lot of things that a lot of us disagree with, like what I just read you about the purpose of the pipeline. Mansfield did say, quote, we recognize that a serious and warranted concern about climate change underlies some of the opposition to the Dakota Access Pipeline. Maybe, as a matter of policy, a broad-based carbon tax that forced all players in the marketplace to bear the true cost of their carbon emissions should be imposed. The revenues from this broad-based tax could be used to offset other taxes. But policymaking is not our function. Okay. Interesting. Fascinating, in fact. And I don't know what avenues of possible, you know, for, 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 well, clearly, 
clearly the court suggests that you know hey maybe this is a maybe this is a a legislative challenge that might might be accepted by the legislature uh, under the current leadership I would say don't count on it but maybe the fact that the court recognizes that climate is a legitimate concern a serious and warranted concern that's what the court says a climate is a serious and warranted concern and that that underlies some of the opposition to dapple the fact that they recognize that to me suggests that maybe there are other avenues besides legislative that might be worth pursuing. So I don't know. I, I, I don't know exactly where that goes, but I was intrigued by that. Now, um, again, this, is a, the, the, this, this ruling is not going to be appealed. Uh, it is amazing how much money has already been spent by the plaintiffs, m- m- time, money, stress. And uh, I would like to tell you that now the matter of the Dakota Access Pipeline is settled once and for all. Uh, Unfortunately, that's probably not the case because Energy Transfer Partners, the parent company of DAPL, is uh, it's. uh, I would like to say that it's. uh, We we suspect this is going to happen, but they pretty much have said this is going to happen. They want to increase the flow of oil through that pipeline. Uh, For a while, it looked like they were suggesting they might want to add a second pipeline. Uh, that creates some political challenges. Uh, they, even, though, even though either option is pretty costly, it's probable that they're going to try to increase the flow through that pipeline. That means building some pretty uh, expensive and powerful pumping stations. And what you know what we're looking at is increasing the flow from say 570,000 barrels per day to 900,000 barrels per day or more and again not only does that exacerbate climate change but it increases the risk of a spill you know, you've got more power more pressure more heat uh yeah uh, a much much bigger risk of a spill and again we know that a spill is not it's not a, it's not a matter of if it's a matter of when Anyway, that's the update on the Dakota Access Pipeline. Thanks, folks. This is Ed Fallon, your host on the Fallon Forum.